want to greet all of you again today in the name of our precious Savior. What is a wonderful thing it is to think on Him. <clears throat> and I too pray that throughout the week your thoughts of Him have been sweet, encouraging, strengthening. We need Him every day. In my mother's congregation as I was growing up, one of the hymns I remember them singing on a very regular basis is, I need thee every hour. And that is true. We, we need thee every nanosecond. So we thank God for his wonderful and kind mercies in keeping us through the week and bringing us here. Brethren, whether you have struggled with sin all week or have been on the mountains rejoicing and wanting to build a tent there, I pray that you have brought your heart into submission to our wonderful Lord and have come to rejoice in him today. I pray that every time that we come, we are able truly to lift up our voices heartily and with joy for him. <clears throat> I don't know, if you are visiting with us for the first time, we welcome you. We're very thankful to have you here. Uh, <clears throat> as you will notice, our little ones are with us. And as you will also likely notice, from time to time you will see one of our parents take a little one out who is in training for more training. So uh, if you have a little one that's having one of those days and it's difficult to quiet them, you can just take them right through that door in that room. We have a very large screen where you can continue to follow the sermon. And if in God's mercies your parental uh, work is blessed and they quiet down, bring them back. Come back in. It is not a land of banishment back there. Now you will see people come and go. That will not trouble us. Some people are very uncomfortable with that, but you, after about five minutes here, you should be very comfortable with that. That's the way our services go. <clears throat> we also have a nursing mother's room uh, through those doors. You can ask, I think, most of the people back there where it is, and they will be glad to point it out. It also, um, I do like to say <clears throat> that uh, it was it was designed by mothers for mothers, and uh, most mothers discover that when they go back there. It wasn't just the work of a bunch of men who were just getting a, a job done. So uh, we have a place back there for our mothers. We love our mothers. We have a culture of life here, and we delight in our mothers and the babies that the Lord gives us. Uh, that being said, if you have a cell phone, would you please check it and make sure that it is on mute? <laughs> we, would, we would appreciate that. Okay. Well, if you will open your Bibles to the letter to the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. I was listening 
to a sermon by a man who uh, did an extraordinary book on the epistle to the Hebrews. And as he got up to preach, he said, I get this question everywhere I go. Who wrote Hebrews? And he said, I don't know. So that's it. (laughs) I don't know. And uh, I sat down with my doctor and she said, oh, you're preaching through Hebrews? Who wrote it? I would love for people to be more interested in what it's about, but everybody wants to know who wrote Hebrews. I will tell you without any hesitation, we will know in glory, and it won't be hearsay. So it won't be a rumor. I'm looking forward to a place where there aren't any rumors. So we're in the book of Hebrews. The letter to the Hebrews. For those of us, that, uh, for those of you who have not been with us, we uh, we've been spending some time in the first four verses, um, and the reason for that is, first of all, the God we worship. And the God who saved our souls is made as plain to us as anywhere in Scripture. And it is a great and high theme to consider God, to consider the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to consider the Son, which we will continue on today. We will continue after several messages on God and the Trinity We are looking now at the Son by whom God has spoken. So if you'll stand with me one more time, we're going to read together Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Hebrews, this most blessed letter, verses 1 through four. All right, brethren, let us read. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Press image when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, he had by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Let's remain standing for prayer. Father in heaven, we have read thy holy and infallible word. We thank thee for the revelation thou hast given us of thyself. Blessed be thy holy name, O living God. How we thank thee for the revelation, the true, the pure, the infallible revelation 
of Christ Jesus, thy son, that thou hast set before us again. Father, may our hearts be drawn like lodestone on iron. Bring our hearts, O God, to thee and to Christ. May our minds and, and may all of our apprehension and mental acuity be focused on, on Christ. Oh God, may our hearts burn with love for him because this God loves us. Now, oh Father, once again I pray. I ask thee because I know thou art good. I know thou art gracious. And I know that thou dost love thy blood-bought people. Lord, look at thy sheep. Oh Christ Jesus, great shepherd of the sheep. Look at thy precious little lambs here today. And feed them, feed them, fill them with their heart's desire of thee. And now, O oh God, I pray that whatever state our heart was in when we walked in the doors of this building, I pray that thy spirit will draw our hearts up and fix them upon thee, that our worship, our attention, oh, and our adoration might be fixed on him that loved us and gave himself for us. Now, Father, there's some lost ones here. There are lost folk here. I pray in thy righteous name. Thou dost, thou dost delight to save sinners. Thou delightest to make heaven a joyful place when one sinner repents. Thou delightest to set captives free. Do that today. Do that today, O oh God. Do that today. And Father, for thy dear loved ones, Christ, I pray thee, Christ, O oh lover of our souls, come into the garden of thy delights and delight in thy bride here. Come and love us, and may our hearts return great and glorious and true love to thee. I pray it in thy name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> One of the great themes of Hebrews is God speaks. Chapter 1, verse 1 of this sermonic letter declares that God at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. <clears throat> prophets here refers to anyone by whom God revealed himself and his purposes in the old covenant age. Verse 2 then contrasts the time past with these last days. God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. The contrast is obviously between the old covenant prophets and the new covenant Son. In both covenants, God speaks and reveals himself. 
But the Holy Spirit's point is that God speaking by his son is greater than the prophets. For us, this doesn't seem so surprising. For the Jewish believers who heard this, it would be shocking. Who was greater than the prophets? Who would be greater than Moses? And the Holy Spirit says, the Son. In both covenants, God speaks and God reveals himself. But the Holy Spirit's point is that God speaking by his Son is more glorious. Furthermore, the new covenant revelation by the Son builds upon the old covenant revelation by the prophets. These two verses reveal a theme that runs throughout the entire epistle. The old covenant and the new covenant. And there are very clear and many references to the old covenant in their context and what they were to mean or what they did mean. But then it's in the contrast of the greater light of Jesus Christ. It's like lighting a match at noon on a clear Florida sunny day and comparing it to the sun that's shining down. It's still light, but it doesn't compare. That doesn't make it something to cast off. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't love and study the Old Covenant Scriptures. But the point is that these Jews, in the face of persecution, are wanting to run back to what the revelation of the prophets was, rather than seeing that in the light and the greater stature of Jesus the Son. Again, these two verses reveal that the Old and New Covenant Scriptures both are the revelation of God. It was the same Spirit speaking through the prophets that spake through the Son. But it's the fulfilling of what the prophets have said that makes Christ so much better. We do not disdain. We do not throw out the old covenant scriptures. We see them for what they were. A schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. <clears throat> now, again, this theme of God speaking in the old and new covenants appears throughout Hebrews. Watch for it. Pay attention. It is remarkable how many quotes from the Old Testament are in this book. And there are even uh, many, many references or, or very passing mentions that are not verbatim quotes, but it's clearly speaking of the Old Testament. Read it carefully and realize that the, the reader is not putting down the Old Testament revelation. He's just saying the New Covenant and its revelation of the crucified and resurrected Christ is better. 
That is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament pointed to. <clears throat> Live with the reality of the fulfillment rather than going back to the types and shadows. Now, we also don't want to miss an emphasis. <clears throat> Having said those things about the comparison, the author of Hebrews makes abundantly clear that the old covenant revelation of God is still relevant for the new covenant revelation people. The new covenant fulfills the old covenant in Christ Jesus, our great high priest. Now God speaks to us in the new covenant by the appearance, the person, and the works of Jesus Christ. That's how he speaks to us. And by the power of his spirit, we have a pure revelation from God. Now, to emphasize the staggering superiority of Christ and the new covenant revelation over the old covenant prophets, the Holy Spirit lists seven descriptions or affirmations. Children, an affirmation is uh, asserting that something is true. If I say, this is a bottle of water, I am affirming a truth. If I said, this is a bottle of water, that would not be an affirmation. Mm -hmm. This is true. So, <clears throat> these seven descriptions begin the high and majestic Christology that fills the pages of Hebrews with the glory and with the beauty of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Now, once again, for the children and for those of you perhaps not familiar with the word, Christology means the doctrine, the teaching of Scripture about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is a Christology. It is about him, our blessed God-man, his attributes, and everything he has accomplished to save us from our sins. That should make it a favorite, if not the favorite doctrine that you find in Scripture. Now, throughout the chapters of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit presents a Trinitarian Christology. We've gotten a hint of that in some of our first messages. And an incarnational Christology. In other words, the Spirit reveals Jesus in the Trinity, in his role as the Son, and the Spirit reveals Jesus as the God man. The God man. Hebrews presents, and I mean this, <clears throat> Hebrews presents a magnificent feast for the hungry Christian. You want your soul filled up to glory? Get in this book. Find Christ and look at his work that saved you from your sins. Look at the person. I mean, if we really meditated on these things, and I know some of you do, 
But if we deeply meditated on the fact that God became man, we would have to ask, why? And Paul tells us, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Listen, feed your soul on Christ in this letter. Read it over and over. You're going to say, wow, there's so many, there's so many references to the Old Testament. I'm, you know, Leviticus is like not my favorite book. And, and I, haven't, I haven't, you know, sussed out everything that's back there through the, through the Old Testament scriptures. We'll get you a, a calendar, a Bible calendar, and start reading the Old Testament every year. Read it every year. My wife and I have been doing it for over 30 years. It's given us a completely, our, our theology began to change as we read the whole book. Now, <clears throat> the psalmist does say, for he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. That's an Old Testament passage. But I will tell you what, it fits the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're hungry for goodness, righteousness, purity, God, delight yourself in Christ. So the sermon is entitled, Seven Descriptions of Christ. And you will see the word lordship. We introduced this subject last week because... These seven descriptions are about Christ's superiority. Now we're beginning to count off those things that make him superior. So we have one major head and several subpoints. First, God appointed his son heir over all things. We began under this head last week. We continue. And there is the word. Lordship. I'll explain why that is there as we work our way through. Now, <clears throat> taking up where we left off, we learned last time that Hebrews refers to Jesus as Son in two ways. Number one, in His divine nature as the eternal Son of God. And two, in His human nature as the God-man. I'll repeat that because if it got by you, much of what I'm going to say for the next few minutes will be bewildering. And I don't want that. I want it to be clear. I pray the Holy Ghost fills this place. Then we'll all hear. Number one, in his divine nature as the eternal Son of God, <clears throat> And number two, in his human nature, as the God-man. Now, if you can bear that in mind, things fall out of my mind very quickly. But I pray that you can hold it in there longer than I. In other words, as Bobby Jameson puts it, Jesus is the son who became son. We talked about that last week. Jesus is the Son who became Son. Now, at first, that might sound a little unclear. That might even sound a little nonsensical to some of you. The Son who became Son. What does that mean? 
Well, I, I want us to dig down into that because it's something that appears right here in the epistle to the Hebrews. Now, not all evangelicals are uh, uh, necessarily in agreement with or hold this particular view. I do, I think, everybody hear that word? <laughs> I think, you can disagree. But I think this handles the material more satisfactorily. So, you can put it to the test and tell me next week you don't agree. That's fine. <clears throat> Owen didn't inc- completely agree with this, so that's, I tremble. Now, <clears throat> he is the son. Jesus is the son who became son. Uh, Jameson goes further to say, quote, We can say coherently that the son became son only by saying, God became man. That should begin to give us a little light on that subject. The son who became son can only be put in an understandable way if we grasp that God became man. Now, brothers and sisters, You just heard an astonishing and miraculous work of God. Don't take that lightly. God became man. And he spoke through his son. So. What I've just articulated is the mystery and the glory of the incarnation. John's gospel puts it this way. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, if you've ever meditated on that, I I guarantee you, especially in your earlier days as a believer, you looked at it and it said, that's what it says. But my brain doesn't quite grasp that. Or you just went right over it without realizing what was said. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. What kind of sense does that make? Well, it makes biblical sense. Because it goes on to tell us that the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Is that your God? Is that your Savior? That's the only one in the Bible. He was with God. That means there are within the essence of the one true God. Two or three. And we all know it's three. uh, I almost blew that. Persons. Hmm, been a long week. So, three persons, three persons within one essence. We can put it another way, all right? He was with God and the word was God. There is something there that is above us, something supernatural, something so high that our minds do not easily 
lay hold of it with God and was God. There's only one God, exactly. But this word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. The word incarnation, by the way, comes from the Latin incarnatio. And and what it talks about here is that God took on humanity. So, let's put it another way in the hopes of turning it a few times and seeing if a few different descriptions give us a clearer picture. God's name is I am. I am. That means he always is. He always has been. He is now. He always will be. God is. He's not looking at a watch. He's not looking in a mirror saying, I'm aging. He is God, the almighty, the all-knowing, the all-present, infinite, eternal, the only wise God. He is, and he is the I am. So he always is. He never becomes. Are you with me? That's really important. (laughs) That's really important for your doctrine of God. Because the scriptures tell us that God is immutable. That means that God never changes. For him to become, generally speaking is to say that he's changing. So we have to walk very carefully here. Very carefully. We're looking at the issue of being and becoming. Being is God. Becoming is creation. Keep thinking with me. So the Son of God always has been And always will be. And in his nature as God, he is. He never becomes. In his nature as God. His essence as God never changes. It cannot change. But when the eternal son miraculously United with humanity in Mary's womb, he became the God-man. The only becoming was his humanity. As the Son of God, he is, and he was, and he ever will be. So that's hard to understand. Let me remind you, this is God. And it's far above us. It is a mystery, but it is one of the most beautiful mysteries in the Bible. If it isn't the greatest. I mean, you know, we might all say, oh, well, you know, I like the Trinity. And the other. someone else may say, well, I like the Incarnation. <laughs> but they're all dumbfounding if we meditate on them and think them through. It's God. We're not God. We don't know everything. 
And even though we might even have big libraries, we know almost nothing. God knows it all. So, being God, becoming Christ's human nature, this is part of the mystery of the incarnation. Now, let's press this a little bit further. Like the Trinity, there are some very great and difficult issues for our minds to try to reach up and grab. Huge. So, as the God-man, born of a virgin, he lived an earthly human life. He accomplished salvation for his people. He ascended into glory after rising from the dead. And when he was enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Okay, now, are you you listening? This is important. (laughs) When he rose, when he ascended up into glory and entered the realms of eternity and sat down at his father's right hand. He was given the title, Son, this day have I begotten thee. That's the idea. It's a messianic term. It is a messianic title. God, man, Truly God, fully God, or he's not God. I mean, if there was one aspect about Christ in his so-called deity that wasn't deity, he wouldn't be God. And the same thing is true of his human nature. If anything about his human nature was either ratcheted up for the job, you know, or changed, he wouldn't be human. He had to be truly human and truly God. You say, hmm, that's a lot to ponder. Oh, I've got more. Are you ready? He's truly God, truly man in one person. That's the greatest of the mystery. He's truly God. He's truly man, but he's not two persons. He's one person in some way that our minds cannot grasp. I'm sure some of you would not consider this fun, but I find it fun reading the theology books and seeing them trying to wrestle with this mystery. It's great. I I sit along saying, "Hmm, I don't understand that either. No, I don't understand that. But it's my God. Our concept of God needs to be stretched to its biblical proportions. Not our little ideas of God. In fact, we have to check ourselves because our little ideas of God might mean that we're just idolaters without the real God. We want him It's difficult for us to describe and define. So, how do I know that it was when he rose and was seated, and and if I may put it this way, when he was enthroned, 
<clears throat> How do we know that that's when uh, this day I have begotten thee is applicable to him? Well, in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, we read, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, all right, here it is. Thou art my son. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Wait a minute, wait a minute. He was already the son. So what are we talking about? Oh, good question. From eternity in his deity, he was always the son. Always. But now, as he has gone through his glorious incarnation stage and has inseparably become God and man, he has accomplished the purpose for which the God, of which his father sent him. And as he rose up and sat down in his throne, he was declared son in a new way. How glorious. It's because he accomplished our salvation. The son who became son. Then it begins to be a beautiful wordplay. It's beautiful. So, the event we just read in Psalm 2-7 is the enthronement of the messianic king in the heavenly Zion. Oh, yeah. yeah verse 6 of Psalm 2 declares, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Earthly, earthly, earthly Jerusalem never had that king sitting on top of the holy hill. But heaven, in the heavenly Zion, say, where'd you get that? Read to the end of Hebrews. You will begin to see a remarkable, a remarkable number of passages that talk about the heavenly reality with the earthly symbols. The son that became son. God that became man. Being and becoming all point to the incarnation of the eternal son of God. Always God. Man, during and after the incarnation. There is a holy, perfect man in heaven. Now let me encourage you. Did you have a rough week? Maybe not. But you're going to have a body like that. And you're going to be in that region. He is... The second Adam who accomplished our salvation. And he's the prototype. He's the first one that rose from the dead and went into glory. And was glorified the way he was. Is that in the Bible? Sure is. Are we reading it? Are we thinking about it? Are we drinking it in? Are we beginning to hope? 
Are we beginning to see truths in here that help us through the day to honor and glorify Christ? It's all here. Got to know him. Well, having said that, Christ's deity and humanity were and are essential for our salvation. Now, we looked at chapter 8, paragraph 1, and chapter 8 and paragraph 2. And I urge you, as I did last week, in fact, somebody even read it through the whole sermon last week while I was preaching. That was good. Read the, it's my favorite chapter in, in the confession, doesn't have to be yours, but I will tell you, it so beautifully set forth Christ. It just so beautifully sets forth Christ and sets him forth as the God-man, as the one mediator of the new covenant. How beautiful. I'm I'm just telling you. This is going to be hard for some of us to believe. Good theology, studying good theology makes you worship. A lot of us don't think that we just, you know, we just want the backbeat going and the guitar player and the, and the drums and the, the bass. Oh, now I'm going. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about sitting down and digging into the truth of God. And when the spirit of God begins to stamp that on our soul, when he begins to explore it and he begins to expose it to our hearts, we can't but praise him. I mean, praise God. God became man. Why did God become man? So he could do what God cannot do. Well, I thought God could do everything. Are there things that God cannot do? He can't lie. He can't lie. We can, but he can't. God cannot die. And since it was man that sinned, For there to be a substitute for man had to be a man, not a lamb, not a goat, not a bull, not an ox, not a bird, but a man. And God sent a man. He did a miracle in a little virgin's womb. When the almighty power of the spirit moved in that womb and there was a uniting Of humanity and deity, so that the humanity could die in our place. I mean, if that doesn't make you worship, you need to plead that the Lord would thaw out that iceberg in your heart. And He can. Well, so we've looked at paragraph one and paragraph two, and I'd love to read them again, but we're going to move on. So, He's the heir of all things. Now we're finally back to where the the text uh, has uh, brought us. (laughs) I see some of you smiling. So we're back here at the heir of all things. This son, the son who became son, is the heir of all things. All right? We return to the text, and the word heir here is a legal term. It's a legal term. It speaks of a person who is entitled by law or by the terms of a will to inherit another person's property or or rank. In the ancient Israel, or 
in ancient Israel, the inheritance was the right and privilege of a firstborn son. It was his right and privilege. It should not surprise us that the scripture says that Joseph did not have marital intimacy with Myra, Mary, in my mind, in my heart. Mary, Mary is just Myra mixed up. That, that's all it is. So, uh, he had uh, no marital intimacy with Mary till she had brought forth her firstborn son. What? <laughs> Do you believe the Bible? Do people have babies outside of the natural way? Yes, if God's at work. That's exactly what's happening here. A miracle that transformed the history of the world. Ah. So, <clears throat> and she called his name Jesus. And Luke affirms she brought forth her firstborn son. And we hear it again in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Here it means the title of firstborn. It can be a title. It can be the reality of the first one born. But there's a legal sense where someone can be the firstborn who wasn't the first physical one born. He gets the rights of the firstborn. That even happens in the scriptures. And I have time to search that out. But you can go and find it. Now, he's the firstborn from the dead. Now, this is after his resurrection. Uh, this is as he rises up from that glorious and astonishing miracle that changed the history of the world. He's the firstborn from the dead in the way that he died and rose again to a glorified body. Our glorified bodies are off in the future. <clears throat> so, Hebrews itself tells us that to come to Christ is to come to the church of the firstborn. That'd be a good name for a church. Church of the firstborn. Actually, that ought to be on the, on the, on the sign of every single congregation. <laughs> if they're regenerated people, they're in the church of the firstborn. Now, as the eternal son of God, before his incarnation, the son already owned all things. We have to think when we read. We're being told here that he's the heir of all things. But if he's been the eternal son of God, he owned all things to begin with. Right? So once again, we're being pulled back into history and we have to think about what he has done and what God has done to reward him. This is a great book. I'm telling you. Well, in the context of Hebrews, being the heir refers to the messianic authority the father gave his son in his resurrection, ascension, and exaltation at his father's right hand. The son 
who became son. The son as heir of all things. Did, did, did I leave anybody behind on that? He was already God. But his humanity accomplished what God the Father sent him to do. And then as he rose and ascended, God blessed the God-man. That's our God. Oh, I hope we love him with all our hearts. Well, the Son, as heir of all things, fulfills the promise of Psalm 2.8. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. There is our beloved God. There is our God-man as the Father dialogues with him. All the way back in the Psalms, oh yeah. We're going to get to more of that in just a minute. Y'all got a couple of more hours today. This is really good stuff. <laughs> we did bring lunch. Well, the Messianic king, we want to we look at this, this notion of the biblical history of Christ's lordship. The biblical history of Christ's lordship. Now, that's a big subject. I won't be able to cover it all today. <laughs> but I sure hope that I can give you a sense of the fact that it stretches from Genesis to Revelation. It's not three or four little verses in obscure books like Habakkuk. Though there's a lot about him there. That, mess that messianic kingship was long ago prophesied and long in coming, long in its coming to fulfillment. It began in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity, God says. I will put enmity between thee, Satan, and the woman, and between thy seed, oh, Satan has a seed, some over in the White House, and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Just before his death, Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Obviously, they didn't live to see the last days. He's talking about his descendants. What would they see? Well, we have a conqueror of Satan on the horizon in Genesis 3.15. We don't know who he is. There's no name put on it. But he's going to arise and crush the serpent's head. That's power. But it's not just raw power. As we'll see, it's regal power. Kingly power. So, Jacob called unto his sons, said, this is what's going to befall you in the last days. How does this book begin? God has spoken to us in his son, by his son, in these last days. We've got some biblical interpretation going on here. So, what else does it say? The scepter, the scepter, that is the sign of rule. That is the sign of kingly power. 
the scepter shall not depart from Judah, whose tribe gave us Jesus. Amen. Judah, Judah, amen. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall be the gathering the people be. Shall the gathering of the people be. Now I'm going to stop on all of these, but we're going to keep moving. That's Genesis 49.10. Balaam prophesied, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh, meaning not near. There shall come a star out of Jacob. Wait, that was Jacob prophesying. Hmm. Right? <clears throat> there shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion. Are you noticing that as the scriptures progress, there's more and more light? And a great deal of that comes from the particular revelations and covenants that God gives to men. He's explaining how he's going to do what he's going to do, and he keeps giving more beautiful and glorious detail. Psalm 2 is a wonderful messianic prophecy. Yet have I set my king... Upon my holy hill of Zion, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. This is regal power. That's what, the, that's what all these images are giving us. This coming one is going to be a king. He's going to have an everlasting dominion. He's going to have power. That's what the Jews were expecting. And then they got Jesus coming along telling them to love their enemies. They were confused. But it's because they didn't know their own scriptures. Oh, my brethren... Speaking of the king, Psalm 72, verses 7 through 9, declares, In his day shall the righteous flourish an abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. That's pretty powerful. Now what are all these prophecies saying? He's coming. And we're waiting for him. He's coming. God has promised. And we can say the same thing. We can say he came. God was faithful. But he's coming. And we need to live in that light, by the way. So, the prophet Isaiah said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Well, that sounds good, right? But it gets better. The mighty God, the Prince of Peace. Wait a minute now. This whole idea of Messiah just got bigger. Much bigger. And friends, we're talking about the son who became son. 
of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. <laughs> Glory to God. It doesn't say, well, you know, these, uh, some of these Baptists are going to get together and see if they can make it happen. It never happened be too many church splits. So <clears throat> Daniel saw in a vision. I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven. Clouds of heaven was a tip off to the Jews. We read it and it's just clouds. But they understood that it was God that rode the clouds. So when we look at this, we're being, being given a divine figure. He's the son of man. What was Jesus's favorite title? Son of man. He came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days. And they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. They lived in a world where kingdoms fell all the time. They're being told something that their minds can't comprehend. A kingdom that doesn't fall. When Jesus was born, angels announced, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior. That's good news. But the following part makes it even more beautiful. Which is Christ the Lord. It didn't say Christ the Savior. Now it did say a Savior is coming. I understand that. But Christ the Lord. That title is, is, is almost inseparable from Jesus' name in certain parts of the New Testament. Lord. 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 What does it mean? The boss. It means the king. It means the one who's in control. It means the one that has the authority. Wise men came to Jerusalem and asked, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? They were expecting a king. King Messiah. But they didn't like it being attached to Jesus. That's exactly who it was. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and we've come to worship him. That's verse 2 of Matthew 2. Herod did not like that. Kings don't generally like to hear about other people coming looking for a king that they're more interested in than he. He didn't like that. He called the chief priests and scribes and asked where the Christ should be born. And they answered in Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet. And thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor. Now today a governor is a specific office. This is talking about a leader, a powerful leader, a king, a lord. Become a governor that shall rule my people Israel. 
What did Jesus say after his crucifixion and resurrection? All power. All power. All power. In heaven and earth is given unto me. Go ye therefore. Go preach me everywhere. Go to the nations and preach me. Wait a minute. That is just not politically correct, y'all. I mean, you know, you need to leave the Buddhists to be Buddhists and the Hindus to be Hindus. And you need to leave everybody that you leave the atheists alone. Just let everybody be everybody. No, that's a sure ticket to hell. No. Jesus, in his love, says, go everywhere and preach me and preach the kingdom. Oh, can't have a kingdom without a king. Christ is often referred to in regards to his kingdom without the word king being attached to him. But it's completely ridiculous. It, he said the kingdom of God is drawn near you. How? I'm the king. The king had come. The very fact that Jesus stood on this earth meant that the kingdom was present. Not in its full and glorious consummation. That's coming. And we're a day closer. I never get tired of saying that. A day closer. We're a week closer. A month closer. A year closer. It is coming. And we don't know how soon it will be here. And you shouldn't gamble on it. You should be ready for it whenever it comes. And it's coming. It is coming. Hmm. At least uh, in Beth. Oh, by the way, Herod being upset said, Where, where's he going to be born? And he said, well, Bethlehem of Judea. And they said, thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people. That's Micah. That's the book of Micah. Where? Bethlehem. Hmm. That's what the prophet said. That's where Jesus was born. That's the king. That's why angels announced it. Heaven announced that the king is here. Israel missed it. We could miss it. What did Jesus say after? There again, all power. Now, what did Peter say? What did Peter say on the day of Pentecost? For David is not ascended into the heavens. David is not ascended into the heavens. He's interpreting scripture. All right, you on board? He's preaching and interpreting the holy scriptures. He said, David said it, but David didn't ascend. But he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, footstool, rule. Everybody's under him. <clears throat> Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter preached in Cornelius's, the Gentiles, home. <clears throat> The word which God sent unto the children of Israel preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. 
Now, why is he saying that? Because the gospel is going just like Jesus commanded. It's going into the Gentiles. It went to, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, what he was saying is that the love of God extends past the walls of Israel. He wasn't, he wasn't saying Jesus died for every person, past, present, and future. He was saying, here, Nicodemus, is something you need to get a hold of. You need to know. Unless you're born again, you're never going to see the kingdom of God. And you need to know that that peace comes by Jesus, Paul and Silas, with Cornelius, and all of these. What I'm trying to do is weave all these together. You need to see that what's being preached is a Lord. In every one of these, he's Lord of all. That's exactly what he, the, the Great Commission is all about. And he said that the word I say you know has been published throughout all Judea. All Judea. That never leaves out the idea that Jesus is the Lord. He's not just a Savior. He is a Savior. Glory to God in the highest. Not denigrating that for a moment, but he's a Lord. And there are groups of Christians that, that really honestly believe that they're honoring Christ by saying, well, you know, we don't talk about this lordship stuff. That's the only Christ preached. He is, not going to be, he is the Lord. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Paul said to the Philippians jailer, Paul and Silas, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, wait, that's a verse that everybody likes. But it doesn't say believe on the Savior, and he's the Savior. But the Savior is the Lord, the conquering King, the Master, the Ruler of heaven and earth. All power has been given to him. Now, Paul and his fellow laborers got into serious trouble for preaching the gospel of the kingdom. They were accused of this crime. Ready? Whom Jason has received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, one Jesus. They understood what they were hearing. They understood these guys. They talk about this Lord Jesus. They're talking about another king. That's treason. No, it's liberation in the truest sense. There's a king that we can go and bow to who saves our souls and keeps us for eternity. Glory to God. But why? How could he do that? He's the heir of all things. He's the heir of all things. That idea includes his governance over all things. So, how does the book of Acts end? I would love to go into the Pauline epistles and all the rest of the, how we'd be here a long time. But Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came came in unto him, (coughs) preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ. With all confidence, no man forbidding him. That's how it ends. The kingdom. It's real. It's alive. The king came. He established it. And now 
He's expanding it. Go back to Matthew 13 and look at those kingdom parables and to see that God's purpose is spreading out through the whole world. Hey, we're a part of that. Where are you spreading? I mean, moms often, it's just really interesting that moms are usually the ones that feel like the most guilty and it's like, no, God gave you a mission field right there in the house. Work there. Work there. You don't have to be out on a street corner. In fact, none of us have to be on a street corner, though that is a wonderful calling. We all need to take the gospel in what ways we are able. So it it isn't like, okay, I'm like the model for everybody, so whatever I'm doing, you need to be doing, or you're not really a Christian. Get past that. So Paul dwelt for all that time, and that's how the summary of his work there went. Preaching the kingdom, teaching those things concerning Christ. Now, in Revelation then, have you noticed, we started in Genesis, we're in Revelation now, we see Jesus the king riding forth on a white horse as the king of kings. And Lord of lords. He's not in second place. He's the king. The king. As if there were no other king. He's the king. So let me run to one more idea and then a conclusion. Yes. What is the meaning of this lordship that we're talking about? Remember... The Son. God has spoken in the Son. Right? And the Son is the heir of all things. So what's the meaning of His Lordship? Now we can spend a lot of time there, right? Everybody can imagine this. But let me just try to make a good stab at a summary of it. The lesson here is really quite simple. If you're a believer... Live your life in submission to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. A whole lot more could be said, but this is it. Do you understand that when you talk about Jesus, when you talk about that precious Lamb of God, the Lamb is also the King. He's the King. Jesus owns and governs The universe and all that is in it, it's all his. Christians should live for and worship Jesus as citizens of his kingdom in this world. It doesn't look like a kingdom much to us right now. But if you read Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, if you read what Christ taught, if you read how the apostles took those things and applied them to the daily lives of God's people, you would realize we're supposed to be living like kingdom heirs. Kingdom people. You are kingdom people because you have a king. Here's one of the expressions of that kingdom. And every place around the world today where they are gathering in the name of Jesus, they're expressing the kingdom of God, or at least they should be. We should be spreading 
the gospel. That's one of the reasons I'm so thankful for our ministries. But we're not the only ministries on the planet. There's loads of God's people out there advancing the kingdom of God by preaching the gospel of the God-man, Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected on the third day. He ascended up into glory. And when he was enthroned, when he sat down at his father's right hand, he said, today I've begotten thee. The son that is king and the son that became son. Now, let me just say this. Christians should live in for and worship Jesus as citizens in his kingdom and then eagerly look forward to living with and worshiping him in the ravishing realms of his eternal kingdom. Paul tells us how to do it. You ready? Let this mind be in you. Are you Christian? Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is bringing you a message from Jesus, the King. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself even unto death, the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above Every name that at the name of Jesus, every every knee shall bow. Wait, what? I thought we were just like all buddies here. That's what a lot of Christianity thinks. Oh, no, we have a king. And when we get into that glorious day, we're going to bow. And we're going to like to bow if we're Christians. But everybody's going to bow. Nobody will have an argument. Atheists will be quiet. They won't be able to say, I, um, he doesn't exist. They won't. It won't happen. And they can mock at that, but they won't in that day. That's right. They will not in that day. God has highly exalted him. Today I've begotten thee. Thou art my son. And given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and in things of heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Father, to the glory of God the Father. Do you see it? He's the heir of all things. And he will reign in splendor, magnificence, majesty, glory and we will see it and we will be caught up in a holy worship I don't even know how our minds are going to work it would be like they'd be running like supercomputers. here's the one who loved me before the foundation of the world here's the one who died for me on Calvary's cross here's the one who rose again here's the one seated in his glory I love him we praise thee we praise thee O son of God 
we ought to be practicing it here. That's what every Lord's Day ought to be. This should be warm up for the glories of eternity because he's the king. Well, last thought. This is our conclusion. My brethren and my friends, Revelation 5, 11 through 14 gives us this astonishing vision. If you want to read it with me, that's wonderful. If you want to just listen, listen, let the words of God wash over you. John says, I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of thousands. In our language, he's saying there were millions of them, millions of them, millions of them. And they're all doing the same thing, praising Jesus Christ, the King. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea all that I, and all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power. Everybody, everybody. I mean, I'm thankful that we've begun to sing at least at a level that from here I can hear that we're singing first decade I was here it felt like a solo every Sunday I could barely hear it and he's even in his squeaking there was just almost no singing now we're doing some singing why do we do that it's not a warm-up act it's worship we are to sing to God and that's what they're doing in heaven they're singing and they're glorifying him they're seeing something that captures their minds, and their being. The God who became man, the Son who became Son. And they worshipped him forever and ever. The four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him. That lived forever and ever. That's how we ought to come here. Now, I'm not saying anybody has to fall on the ground. But we ought to come with hearts to worship and to adore. We ought to come ready to pray. And when somebody gets up here and begins to lead us in prayer, our minds should go up to the throne with him. When someone preaches... It ought to be for us to be listening. What is my king saying? Am I getting it? Am I going to be able to walk out of here and live this? Or do I just go on to something more important? No. Worship, brethren. Worship. Worship. Worship the king. So if God has spoken to us by his son, have we heard? Do you see why he's so much better than the prophets? Can you see that? 
while they're stretched out through the Old Testament and at the beginning of the New, they fade. And the one that they're prophesying and talking about takes the stage. And it's glorious. So, he's better to listen to. That's what the prophets would all say. That's, we realize now it's what we were talking about. It's him. And that's just the first of the seven things. When we're done, we ought to realize in our hearts and minds that the worship, the word spoken to us by Christ and of Christ is better than the prophets. Amen. Amen. Thank you, King Jesus. We love and praise and thank thee for thy goodness. <clears throat> oh, how gl- we could go on for the rest of the day. No, our bodies would give out. But Lord, thy truth is so full of light, is so full of glory, so full of goodness. Fill us with thy light in Christ. Bless thy people. Feed thine inheritance. Hmm. And I think you have. Now may we feast on him the rest of the day and the rest of our lives. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. In the name of our Christ, amen. Amen. Brethren, we have the Lord's Supper. And then those who are intending to stay and fellowship and have meal together will do so. Let's take a five-minute break, and I'll try to call us back. So stretch your legs, please. If you need the facilities, I would urge you to do that. And then we will have the Lord's Supper.